just want to enjoy time with my family and my friends and my love. I want to create memories. I want to just be. I'm determined to never lose my sense of wonder. I really have had to learn to cultivate a mentality of letting go of my death grip on every outcome. What I've learned is that something doesn't have to be perfect to be amazing. Since I learned how to roll with the punches, I've been a lot happier person. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Welcome back, everyone. This is Robin Openshaw. Welcome to the Vibe Show. And today's going to be a really personal episode. I actually want to tell you about my house. This is a house that I bought six months ago here in Park City, Utah. I've actually moved five times in the last seven years. And actually, at one point in that seven years, I even built a house that I never moved into that I'm not even counting. That's a long story why I built a house that I did never move into. So if you count that, it's six homes in seven years. But I just lived in five of the six. And because I kept moving to a home that either didn't work because of one of my children's needs, for instance, I moved out of my son's school boundaries when he was 14 and he ended up in tears and said he hated being away from his friends. So I sold that place and bought a different house and Um, another example is I've mentioned that I lived here in the condo here in park city that I had bought. And then after a year, I decided that living with a really aggressive HOA wasn't for me, or I decided that even though I loved my house down in Orem, Utah, the County that I'd raised my kids in wasn't the right cultural fit for me long-term in my new life circumstances. So All this moving has made me wonder, do I have a problem with not being content where I am? So I wanted to share with you a little reflection on all that because moving into this house has made me really reflect on that quality of mind, that feeling that you have, which is a very peaceful, wonderful vibration, that feeling of being content. And I think that contentment is a place that not very many of us actually live in, or maybe just too few of us. I think that a lot of things about our culture sort of predispose us to want something more or want something different all the time. And two, if we were, you know, if we were too content, we probably wouldn't do very well in our careers, or we wouldn't save money for the future, or we would accept really bad behavior from an intimate partner, that kind of thing. So it's not like striving or making changes is categorically a bad thing. But if you're like me and you find it easy to be dissatisfied with life, at least in the 40 40 years uh, at the beginning of my life, I did a lot of that. And, And if you just want to make sure that you don't get stuck in that pattern of always fantasizing about how I'd be happy if this were different or if that were different, for me, it's a real possibility. I think I'm kind of a born critic. And if I didn't take some major steps, I would always be measuring myself and my life and other people against a yardstick where everything falls short. And that matters because then I'm seeing failure everywhere and I'm not happy. So it's on my mind because this house I bought six months ago, I have never been happier in a home than I am here. And I've been asking myself why that is. I actually took some little videos and photos of the inside of this house Um, and I'm going to see if Sue can pull down the whole tour that I did right out on the sidewalk, walking up to the house with the crazy stuff on the outside of the house and walking through most of it. I forgot to show a couple parts for it to show the dining room, for instance, but I'll, I'll have her see if she can get that off of Facebook and show you a little tour. So that'll be in the show notes. If you want to actually see what I'm talking about, but just to give you a sense of how I used to be kind of always striving, always looking to the future for my happiness, always wanting something different or better. 20 years ago, I spent a year pouring over home designs, going to home shows and meeting with builders. And over time that year, I bought the perfect lot and I designed my perfect dream home with an architect. So for months before I even hired the builder, I considered every corner of every room and I designed the perfect house for my family. It was on half an acre 
with plenty of room for fruit trees and 10 raised garden beds. I even had three big giant compost piles that I had in different stages of composting. And I raised my kids in it for 12 years. And I did love that home. I just drove by um, last year and I noticed that it was for sale again. It's on a cul-de-sac in the lovely little town of Linden, Utah. And a really quiet street hardly any traffic, great schools within walking distance. And the house was just exactly what I wanted it to be down to every detail. But this home I live in now, hope you don't mind if I tell you about it in some detail, there's a point to this. So I bought the house from the original owner who had designed and built it himself 17 years ago. He was some kind of craftsman, I think a carpenter or something like that, because all the doors seem to be handmade and they're a, they're not a standard size. And and now he was in his 70s. He's retired and his wife still works, but they moved to Tucson. And so even though he never discussed it in the sale or negotiated with, with us, um, he left us two snowblowers, a perfectly good lawnmower, his Bowflex down in the little fitness room, and a bunch of other cool stuff that they didn't need in Arizona, or maybe they just didn't want to move it. So I have to tell you how quirky this place is. It's ranch style. It's 4,000 square feet. And these kind of homes are ranch style in that mid range, not super small, but definitely not very big. They are not easy to find in Park City. Um, I said ranch style because I grew up in the East Coast, but people out here in Utah call them ramblers. But um, 4,000 square feet is four bedrooms and four bathrooms. So it's bigger than a starter home, but it's a lot smaller than the mansions that are all over this town. This town has a lot of wealthy people who spend half the year here, and then they spend a lot of other time uh, in their homes in tends to be, I know because like half my, half my tennis team is women who live half the year in Florida, California, or Texas for some reason. But you're probably aware that a ranch style house, there's no upstairs. There's a basement, but besides that, you know, everything you really need to live is on the main floor. So you've got a master bedroom suite, an office, a kitchen, a living room, and the laundry room on the main. These kind of homes are in really high demand nationwide, um, but, but here too, because retirees want to buy these kinds of homes so that they have everything they need on the main floor so that when, you know, it starts to get hard to climb stairs, they don't have to. And anything that's down in the basement, they don't actually have to get to it, up, be running up and down the stairs like we do when we're younger. So in the basement, you put your guest rooms if your adult kids or grandkids come home to stay for a while. And so because this just big enough house size with the ranch style layout is so rare, um, I actually spent a year with my realtor sending me listings and I had to jump on this house. Um, I was in a bidding war the second business day that this home was on the market. He had sent me the listing. I saw that it just listed that day. And I said, get me in today, please. And then I was in a bidding war the very next day. But let me tell you just how weird <laughs> this house is. When we when we came to look at it, they didn't want us to go in the master bedroom suite first. I started heading in there and they're like, wait, wait. And I think the reason they didn't want me to go in there is that there's two very weird things in there. It has 17-year-old ugly gray tile in the master bathroom, but that's not even one of the two weird things. One of them is that there's a giant bathtub that you have to step really big over the side of the tub to get into it. So it's a it's a big master bedroom. Um, there's no door on the toilet room. Um, and I'm not including that in the two weird things either. I'm just telling you the more minor weird things. But so you have to step over to get in this giant bathtub. Um, but there's no shower, right? There's only the bathtub with the, um, you know, the shower curtain. But the tub is too big to fill and they don't, there doesn't seem to be a faucet to fill it. I've never have figured out how you would even fill that tub if you wanted to take a really big uh, <laughs> bathtub kind of a soak. There's no faucet for water to come out in the tub. So as far as I can tell, you can only use this giant tub to shower in. I don't get it. So I have no idea why I made it that way. Luckily, if I want to take a bath, there's a guest bathroom almost right next to it. Um, 
uh, out, you know, next to the office and it has just a regular size tub shower combo. And I actually use that a lot. But while the bathroom and the master bedroom are nice and big, the closet, oh my goodness, it's probably the big liability of the house for resale value. It's long and skinny. Only a bachelor would put this closet in a master bedroom. And that's what this guy was when he built it. And then he married his wife um, in middle age. I think he was probably, you know, my age or so when he married her. This closet is too small. No woman would ever put a closet like that in there. I mean, it could be worse. At least it's a walk-in closet. But how I've adapted to that since I moved in here, because some of the things I've changed, I have a two, I've had two construction projects since I moved in the last six months, but the closet, I just don't really see a way to change it or to make that bigger without a huge tearing out of the whole master bedroom suite. So I just hang a lot of my clothes that I don't often wear, like formal things or seasonal things. I'll, I leave them in a downstairs closet and I'll just rotate them up and down for the seasons. Okay. So the huge laundry room on the main floor, it's nice to have a nice big laundry room, right? It had a door on it that said in giant letters, pantry. But when you walk in, it's just a laundry room, a huge laundry room, but there's no pantry. Who builds a 4,000 square foot home with no pantry at all? So there wasn't anything I could do about the small skinny closet in the master bedroom, but with this laundry room issue, I actually tore out part of the laundry room and I made a nice sized pantry and the laundry room that's remaining is still huge. So it's all good, but really that's just weird, isn't it? And this house, the first thing you'll notice if you pull up to it is that it has bears hanging off rafters on the front. So there's some you know, wood beams all over the front of the house. And there are bears hanging from the beams. There's baby bears. And then there's this big carved adult wooden bear standing sentinel in front of the door. You could put a flag in his paw for the 4th of July, or you could dress him up for whatever holiday. There's also this really ugly carved wood moose in front of my office window. Now, 20% of you would think how cute there are bears all over this house. There's four of them on the front of the house alone. Um, You might think that's so Park City. And it is. It is. This is not the only house that there are bears. There's a a well-known house here in Park City where there's a giant bear skiing off the roof. Actually, it being a ski town and a town with a lot of wildlife, it's not entirely unheard of. But 80% of you will say, wow, that's cheesy. Get rid of the bears right now. Um, And how do I know that? Well, because I posted this little video tour, which I'll try to put in the show notes for you uh, on Facebook. And I asked people what they thought. And it was about four to one anti-bears. Well, now on the inside of the house, there's even more bears. There's this solemn looking bear standing there holding toilet papers out to you in the master bedroom. He's just holding his paws out. And between his paws are the toilet paper roll. And yes, I know I could get rid of him, but the strange thing is I just, I can't make myself do it. It's like he was here before me and that just seems rude. And so they've almost like developed a personality for me and I've, I've left him there and I've slowly gotten used to him. There's also a mirror in the master bedroom with a bear draped over the top of it. I'll put a picture in the show notes, but okay. So if you go down to the basement, there's an entire room of this house dedicated to this big fancy pool table. And I don't really play pool. I haven't played a single game of pool since I moved in. And also down in that pool room, there's a wet bar, which is another thing I'd never put in my house. There's a little fitness room down in there too, that I love putting a little, putting a little video in there. It's probably the thing I'm currently most excited about because it took me six months to kind of, you know, uh, save up and buy the equipment that's in there. But I've never had a space just for exercise in my house. I've always had to drive to the gym or ride a stationary bike that I kept in my master bedroom. But the walls of this little fitness room, you can see it in the video, up to the crown molding, the the walls are beadboard painted turquoise. And then there's mirrors above the beadboard on both sides of the room. And the crown molding is painted a salmon color. So the room is turquoise and salmon. Yep, not colors I would really choose. But you know what? I'm not changing it. It does make for a cheery space to work out in. And I think you want your space to exercise to be fun and light and colorful. 
So right there in the fitness room, my sauna is down there. You already know how I feel about my infrared sauna. And then there's this big, giant, heavy door. This door is enormous. It looks medieval. When I have people over to the house and they want the tour, I take them up to it and I say, what do you think this is? And the thing that most people say is, is that a torture chamber? Um, but behind that door, I'm not much of a TV or movie watcher. I can go weeks without watching TV, sometimes months. So a theater room is definitely not something I would put in a house that I was designing. It's basically a bunker, but it's designed to look like the Park City Silver Mine, which is the origins of this of this town. So the walls in the theater look like they're cut out of stone. And the border of the room is actually a foot of pebbled rocks. There's dynamite stapled to the fake mine rock looking walls. There's lanterns hanging from the beams overhead. And there's also framed photos of all these celebrities who visited Park City over the years. There was even a hard hat and a pickaxe of the oldest living silver miner uh, from Park City. Those were planted in that border of small rocks around, around the edges of the theater. Although the owner did ask me if he could take the pickaxe um, with him because of its sentimental value to him. So I said, of course. So for heat, there's no central heat in there, but there's a space heater and uh, and the space heater works fine. After five minutes, it gets warm in there. But here's here's probably the strangest thing in there. There's a three-person sofa. Um, there's seating in there for five and the three-person sofa at the back of the room, there are armrests in that couch between each of the three seats. So the guy who designed and built this house, he must not have cared at all about cuddling. You literally cannot cuddle watching a movie. Two people cannot fit in one seat, even if they're very small. It just doesn't work. You have to stay in your own seat. You can't even lean over and put your head on your guy's shoulder. It's literally like a birth control couch. You do have a drink holder in the armrest between each of the three seats, so you can drink a beer, but for that privilege, you give up all the ability to love up on your somebody watching a romantic comedy. So there's one full basement bathroom for anybody who's staying in one of the two guest bedrooms down there, but there's no shower in it. There's this huge clawfoot bathtub up on a a low platform. It's uh, beautifully tiled. And the clawfoot tub is really cool. There is a little handheld that you could do a handheld shower. I don't think most guests would want to do that. But it takes up a huge amount of space and it's beautiful. But again, not what I would do. I would put a tub shower in there or at least just a shower, not just a tub for the two guest rooms. On the other side of the basement, there was a really basic large craft room down there. And we did tear that out and... Uh, the full bathroom with an actual shower down there is almost done. I'll take a little video and put it in the show notes. It was supposed to be done in time for my high school reunion, but well, that did not happen. And I think partly because we were waiting for the permit on building the bathroom and then just setbacks and getting it finished. And partly because, which you know, if you've read my book, Vibe, partly because I've decided in the last 10 years to be happy regardless of my circumstances, I didn't freak out when the bathroom that I had done everything in my power to finish before my high school reunion didn't get done as the contractor had promised. I just always remind myself, this is a first world problem. This isn't a real problem. Um, And I just let it go. And you know what? We had fun anyway. And everybody just took turns using the upstairs shower when I had 10 people staying here. Just rolled with the punches. And since I learned how to roll with the punches in the last 10 to 15 years, I've been a lot happier person. So next to that new bathroom that isn't quite done, there's some kind of like hieroglyphic or a giant bug maybe. I'll put a photo of it or in a little video in the show notes. I have no way of explaining why you would want to paint this giant prehistoric looking creepy insect kind of thing right as you walk into the craft room. So just sharing this as yet another example of how this house is not what I would have done. The back of the house, it has the most amazing view. There's a nice long deck to enjoy the view of down below is the fifth to the ninth fairway of the Jeremy Ranch golf course. And there are streams and little ponds uh, down below. Um, 
For some reason, the original owner I bought it from thought it was a good idea to block the biggest wall in the living room, which is the main view out of the back of the house with a giant fireplace. If it were me, again, I would have I would have put that fireplace on the side wall, which would have the additional benefit of if it were on that side wall, it wouldn't block the view. And on the other side of that is inside the master bedroom. You could have had a nice fireplace in there, but that's not what he did. And instead he put a giant impediment to the view of with this amazing view lot. But like I said, the back deck is really great. The view is spectacular. Um, and I can also walk out of my master bedroom onto that deck. And I've got that beautiful view out the bay window of my master bedroom. So you can leave that door open at night in Park City in the summer. It never gets blazing hot. It's about eight or 10 degrees cooler than down in the Salt Lake City Valley. So just a beautiful view to wake up to. Downstairs, below that deck, there's a hot tub. Uh, I've got a little video to show you of that. And the guy who sold me the house said that he would go down there every morning naked and get in the hot tub with his coffee because nobody on either side of the house or behind it can see you back there because you're just way up above, which is pretty cool. So there's a view of the golf course and the mountains behind it for miles, but nobody can see you unless maybe they were really nosy and had binoculars way across the valley. So listen, this house is great. It's the exact size I wanted. I was kind of pinched in the condo before, mostly because I have so much of all four of my kids' stuff that I have to keep toting around from house to house and they visit sometimes. One of my children has lived with me off and on most or over half of the last year and a half. Um, But there's too small and there's also too big. And I didn't want a too big house any more than a too small house. I don't and I never will want a status house. Uh, You know, here in Park City, there's a lot of, you know, 8,000 square foot mansions with 30 foot vaulted ceilings. And while they're very beautiful, um, you know, I I did the dream home. I had that. Um, I lived in it for 12 years and I enjoyed designing and building it. I loved raising my kids in that house. It, It wasn't 30 foot. Uh, it, it was not a status house. I didn't build it for, you know, impressing my neighbors. Um, but, but it was pretty big. It was 7,000 square feet. Um, but I, I love that the office is on the main floor and it's looking out at my very small front yard and having an office on the main floor was something that I realized that I really liked living for a year in the condo where I had to go down to a very cold basement in that condo. Oh, and let me say one more thing. I can't forget the three-car garage. I feel so grateful for it because I missed it in the condo. I'd always had a three-car garage for many years before I bought this house, which is nice to have when you have teenagers and young adults learning how to drive. Um, But in the condo, only one car fit in the garage because all the way around the garage was shelving of all my kids' stuff in boxes and their sports stuff and course we have storage stuff and and the HOA was writing me a threatening email about once a month for having my daughter's car or John's car in the parking stalls next to the condo. We were always getting in trouble for that. So I'm so glad to have a garage I can fit my college kids uh, stored stuff in and our ski stuff which is pretty mandatory in the ski town. So uh, two cars fit in there and I feel grateful for that every day. One of the most important requirements when I was looking for my forever house that I feel like this one is, is that I didn't want to have a steep driveway because there's so much snow here. You could just end up being housebound. Like I can't get out to go play tennis or whatever. Um, There are probably 10 or more days in a year where we have to shovel twice in a single day. So I didn't want a steep driveway and I didn't want to live on a really steep road. Those were deal breakers. I told my real estate agent. This driveway isn't too bad. You drop down into it for maybe, you know, 10 feet and then it flattens out and you can just drive right into the garage. So that drop down in helps the house feel really quiet and secluded. Um, You can hardly see it from the street. So my point of all this is I kind of told you the good and the bad and the ugly, but there's just not much about this house that I would have chosen. I really don't like gray tile. I don't even like the color gray in general in decorating or in clothes. You know, it's pretty rare that you'll find me wearing something gray. 
I like warm tones like beige and brown. And there's just so much gray in this house. The fireplaces, the tile, it's just a lot. The theater room, it's like a cave made out of gray rock. Um, One fun thing is that John's dad was a miner and he actually worked here in Park City in the silver mine 50 years ago. And while I don't hate the theater or anything else about the house, really, I don't even hate the bears. It's quirky in a way that doesn't really represent me and I wouldn't have chosen. Hopefully you're seeing the life metaphor coming here because I love this house so much. I'm so happy. I'm so content here. And what I've learned is that something doesn't have to be perfect to be amazing. I can adapt myself to the circumstance rather than standing back and judging the circumstances. So I want to tell you this story because thinking about this house and how deeply happy I am here is representative of what I want to say about the vibration of contentment. It is a choice. It is cultivated. I don't love this house because I spent months picking out every detail and approving everything about it. This house predates me. It has its own personality. And, you know, I thought that I would take the bears down and change quite a few things. And I don't feel to change that much about it. I mean, I did rip out the teal green carpet out of the dining room and the lavender carpet in a guest room that was in the basement, but I'm leaving the bears and the gray tile. I just decided to adapt to the small closet, part of what I see as a a learning opportunity. To me, it feels like adapting to this house is, is part of my practice in contentment, which is an important thing to me at this stage of my life. I got really tired of trying to make everything perfect in my life and spending too much energy on striving. I like to work, but now I work when I work instead of 70 hours a week. I did that for literally decades but also just really rest and enjoy and relax and breathe too. In this in this home, um, gray colors everywhere and the big fireplace blocking the view. I just want to enjoy time with my family and my friends and my love. I want to create memories. I want to just be rather than always doing. I've really learned that the important lesson that I don't need fanciness or lots of material things around me to be happy. I'm I'm super happy to have a roof over both of our cars. How exciting is that? And that unlike the home I grew up in, in Nebraska, I'm grateful to have enough money to heat the house. I'm ecstatic about that. I was actually really happy in the condo, even if I didn't choose to stay there. Do you know what? That year that we lived in the condo is one of the happiest years of my life. And one thing I learned from the way that I was raised, I want to tell you a little about that too, is that I can be very happy with very little. Some of the best years of my life were years I had next to nothing and my clothes were secondhand and I had to budget very carefully to get through the month. I actually skipped a lot of meals like in my college years. In the first 18 years of my life, dinner six nights a week was something made of beans and a tossed salad. On Sunday, Growing up, there was some ground beef in the dinner. It was our big splurge. Um, Really, the only time we ate an animal product was on Sunday night, and it was never chicken or steak or anything like that. Never had steak in my life. It was just too expensive with a family of 10. And I I definitely see the value in that now, uh, the way I was raised. I mean, we ate like that because, you know, it was cheap. It's cheap to eat salad and beans. But now that I've spent years learning about nutrition, I actually feel really grateful that hovering very near the poverty line, if not below it, as I was growing up, based on the size of our family, at least, I ate cheap foods that actually turned out to be really healthy foods. So there's so many great silver linings in that cloud. Uh, Even if I was too embarrassed to invite anyone over to share a meal, uh, a lot of times, uh, one time right after I got married, I was 20 when I got married and we spent the summer there in Northern Virginia where I grew up. And uh, it, well, that's where I went to high school. And I remember one time my mom just impromptu invited the missionaries over to eat dinner with us, the missionaries, and they had come to our door and my mom's like, why don't you stay for dinner? And my new husband was mortified and he whispered to me, he's like, she's not really 
can invite them to dinner, is she? And I was like, uh oh, what? Why? Why is that? Why is that bad? Well, dinner was boiled potatoes and honeydew melon slices. And you might be saying, yeah, but what else? No, that's that was dinner. Boiled potatoes and honeydew melon slices was dinner. That's the kind of dinner I grew up with. And and I was 20 years old and I had no idea that wasn't a normal meal that you serve to guests. So, you know, in addition to the fact that we had no meat because meat is expensive relative to what we ate, I was also raised not having the money for new clothes. So we went to garage sales on Saturday mornings in the summer. My mother called it garage sailing. And we would look at the newspaper the night before, and in the classifieds, we would circle all the garage sales that looked like we might like their secondhand stuff. And and back in the day, you know, when people read newspapers and classifieds were where you learned about stuff, um, we would read, you know, sometimes it would have really long, detailed classified ads. And you knew if they spent more for like a 10 or 15 line ad, you knew that it was probably going to be a really good garage sale. And we would map out our route around town to get the best ones all picked out. Um, My mom was usually looking for antiques because she would buy them and spend weeks restoring them in the garage by hand and then selling them. And I was looking for preteen clothes, right? I, I wanted to go to the garage sales where they advertised having my size. So, you know, that might be over the years between girls size 10 to juniors size four or six in the years that I was buying my clothes in this way. And the next morning we'd be out in front of their house at 6am sharp waiting for them to open the garage door. We would wait outside to be the very first ones in the best garage sale that we had found so that we could get the best pickings. Because my mom felt that after the first two hours of a garage sale, you might as well not even go because all the good stuff would be gone. And I would be in the back of my mom's old station wagon, just hiding out. And when we got there, I would scout the place out to get the lay of the land and try to assess before I got out of the car, whether or not the people having the garage sale might have a child in my grade. But my big fear was that I would be rummaging through the used clothes piled up on tables in their garage and mark 25 cents or a really nice item might be a dollar Keep in mind that my mother would not buy it for me unless I asked to use their bathroom in the house to try the clothes on. And my fear was always that one of my classmates would come out of the house and see me picking through their old dresses and jeans. And I feared every year that someone would walk into school and point at what I was wearing and say, hey, that's mine. That's my old shirt. But for a few years of our garage sailing adventures, Worrying about one of my classmates walking out of the house into the garage sale while I considered buying their used shirt wasn't my only fear. I actually had something else to worry about, and that is the ignition on my mother's station wagon. I don't know why, but when my mother would turn the key to turn the car off to go in, the car would just keep like idling, only it would splutter and rev. And this would make my mom really mad because she couldn't get out and walk away with the car making all kinds of loud clunky noises that it really shouldn't have made given the fact that she'd clearly turned it off. So my mother would just sit there in the driver's seat and swear at the car. My mom didn't care at all what people thought of her. The swearing or the negotiating with people at the garage sale, I've seen her spend 10 minutes negotiating over less than a dollar to get a better deal on whatever it was that she wanted of their stuff. So the whole station wagon debacle would happen um, with our windows rolled down. We, of course, didn't own a car with air conditioning. And it was summer uh, back in elementary school and junior high school. I lived in Nebraska. It's super hot and humid in the summer. So windows down, the car's making all kinds of crazy noises. And my mother is loudly swearing. She would say, she would just hiss, damn it, under her breath over and over again. Sometimes she'd say, you know, other words that I won't repeat. But I pretty much didn't own any new articles of clothing till I was old enough to get work release from from high school at the age of 15 and start working to earn my own money. And that is when I started buying my own new clothes. My parents had bought a home during the Carter administration when we moved to Washington, D.C. My father was a defense intelligence agent in the Pentagon. And at the time, uh, 
Interest rates were 18%. And with Northern Virginia, which is an expensive place to live, they wanted to prioritize the good schools. They want us to live in Northern Virginia rather than Southern Maryland. Um, When we moved there at the beginning of my sophomore year of high school, it was so expensive to own a home and it was taking over half my father's salary. And of course he had eight children, some of them teenagers. So there just wasn't money for much else. And to my parents' credit, I don't remember them ever saying that we were poor. I don't remember that ever, ever saying we don't have the money for that. We just lived really frugally. And what I gained from that upbringing was to be content with what I have. So do I buy clothes at yard sales now? No. In fact, my guts clench up when I see a yard sale. I feel triggered. I almost feel a panic attack. And do I drive an old beater station wagon? No. And do I ration four ounce glasses of juice from the military commissary? Uh, Super bitter orange or grapefruit juice. Um, And hey, that was the best thing we were served many days. Did I ration it and stand guard over the rationed food to make sure nobody takes more than their share? Like happened every morning of my childhood? No. Do I put the thermostat on 60 degrees? in a cold Nebraska winter and tell everyone that it's their patriotic duty to use a minimum of fuel to economize in the fuel crisis, which really meant I don't want to pay the heat bill. Well, no, I don't do that. In fact, I still, to this day, I feel endless gratitude. I honestly think about this all the time, even at the age of 53. I remember to feel really grateful that I do not have to wear a parka and gloves inside my own house because heat is too expensive. And yes, I did do that for entire winters. These are relics of my childhood. I wasn't super excited to repeat, but they started me on a path to becoming very resilient, very conscious of my own use of energy, my own carbon footprint. I just figured out in the upbringing that I had that I don't need much. You don't ask for attention when you're one of eight children, you know? I've noticed that I don't need much relative to a lot of the people around me. Uh, my, my childhood of having just enough to eat that I wasn't severely underweight. I actually was pretty severely underweight, um, but not malnourished. And, and having just enough helped me realize that I don't need as much as I might think I do to be happy. So I'm going to do a podcast episode soon on this show about the day that 400 pharma trolls. I'll explain what pharma trolls are on that episode. Basically, it's people who attack anybody who criticizes a pharmaceutical product. And they attacked me on every platform on the internet, every place that we work. You know, we are um, an internet company and they attacked us everywhere. And uh, I remember one of those trolls during the, what we call Trollmageddon, um, one of them was on my YouTube videos calling me privileged. And basically saying no one should listen to her because she's so privileged. So now you know a little bit about about how I was raised. And you can decide for yourself if I was raised with privilege. Um, I don't need fancy things or spending a lot of money. I don't need very many specific circumstances in order to be happy. I mean, being warm really helps, you know, and not being hungry for more than a day really helps. But I read this story recently of a man who owned $4 million in property and fancy toys and luxury cars, but he also had $5 million in debt and his business was failing. And so he went out back of his mansion and he shot the horses in the barn and he shot the dogs and he burned the house down with his wife and his daughter and himself inside. And he had, he had just told a friend of his shortly before the fire, he said, I'd rather die than give up the standard of living. If they're going to come repossess my house and my fleet of luxury cars that he and his wife had, they had twin Rolls Royces, I think. I guess he felt I'm too ashamed or I don't really know who I am with all these trappings of success that are my family's face to the world. I'd just rather die. And so that too makes me think about the vibration of contentment. And I'm not saying that we have to live in poverty where we don't use the central heat that's in our home. Contentment really is happiness. But having lived without, right? I still I still had more than most of the people in the world even though I just described an upbringing to you that you probably are surprised 
to hear about. I, I still wasn't, um, I still wasn't poor by mo- most of the world's standards. I didn't come from privilege that, that people, um, during troll Mageddon were assuming. And, and it's not even that I need to defend myself. I didn't even answer the people on YouTube saying that I'm the face of privilege, but I know the truth. I know that I came from almost nothing. I know that I received $0 in help going to college and grad school from my parents or anyone else. I also didn't apply for any government grants. Okay. No criticism of anybody who did, but I'm so very grateful to know that the stuff and things that I may ever own doesn't make me me and isn't the source of my happiness. And as a parent, I don't have that sense of, I want to give my kids everything I didn't have that I often hear uh, people my age say when they're talking about how they wanted their parenting to be different. I hear that verbalized a lot. What I want to give my kids, even though they did grow up in a house that did not require a parka and gloves indoor in the winters, is that resilience and resourcefulness that I'm probably more grateful for than any other characteristics that I have. I talk about that in episode 40, where I interviewed my brother, Rob. Yes, that's right. Rob and Robin. Our birthdays are the same week too, but he's the middle of my six brothers. And he told some really cool stories about um, our parents who helped us with nothing and gave us nothing. So if you haven't heard that, make sure you go listen to episode 40. It's one of my favorites. But getting really clear on what I don't need to be content also causes me to reflect on what I do need. What are the bare necessities that I need to feel content? I mean, I could get really anxious and be dissatisfied with my children, my adult children's choices. But I'm I'm just in a place where I'm so glad they're healthy and happy and they're turning out to be kind and service-oriented. Emma has two volunteer jobs currently, and that makes me really happy. And I'm so grateful that they love each other and they enjoy each other's company. I'm happy. I'm content with their issues relative to what their issues could be. Obviously, I can't talk about the things that I've had to let go of when it comes to what I wanted raising kids. Well, I'll tell you one. I wanted some little piano prodigies and straight-A students. Oh, and I wanted like a neat knit kid who keeps her room color coded and organized. If I'm being honest, that is what I used to want. That is what I used to think I was going to raise my kids to be. And I didn't, I didn't get any of that in my, in my four kids, but I've let go of so much in order to be happy, let go of expectations, let go of my attachment to outcomes. And I think those kids are pretty cool, pretty great, even if they're nothing like the kids I intended to raise. You know that a major Buddhist tenet, remember Buddhism isn't a religion, right? Just think of it as like a philosophy, things to think about, principles to consider guiding your life. They don't compete with Christianity. They don't compete with the philosophy of Jesus, for instance. So a major tenet of Buddhism that monks practice is non-attachment. Can you feel complete and grounded? Can you be a loving person? without this specific person's presence in your life or that person's love or presence in your life. And I'm not, I'm not saying to cut yourself off from people you love, but the exercise is valuable in becoming more present and more grounded and more content. So think of people you're really quote unquote attached to. Can you love, can you feel calm and peaceful and happy without the love or the presence of a certain person in your life. I'm not saying that you wouldn't be sad if you lost someone close to you. I'm saying, what if you can love that person better? What if you'll feel more loved by them if you don't actually need them? If you let go of, quote, needing them. It's just a question for you to think about. It's not a statement that I'm making here. But I dated a guy for a couple of years, um, and he's probably like just one of the most quality guys I've ever dated He was about six years older than me. And at the end of that time, he didn't really explain it, but he he met someone else and he married her really quickly. And a few years later, we had a very long conversation once on the phone. And he told me um, that he thinks about me every day and that I'm the one who got away and 
the one he has a lot of regrets about. And so we, we kind of talked it out, not in any kind of inappropriate way. He was married to, uh, who is, you know, still his wife. And he said, you know, I just, I didn't go the distance with you because I didn't feel like you needed me. And I remember telling him, I said, well, you're right. I didn't need you, but wouldn't it be nice to have someone choose to be with you? I was choosing to be with you every day, even though I didn't need you. And so he was kind of shocked by that because he's very successful. He's like six foot four, tall, dark and handsome, very successful. And I think he was just used to, was used to being needed. He was used to women who uh, needed his credit cards and, you know, needed him to provide. And I, I pointed out to him that it's actually pretty great to come together as equals and, and not, uh, need. And I honestly think that because I've embraced everything I write about in my last, uh, book publication, the book is called Vibe. It's published by Simon and Schuster in 2017. It's really everything I've learned about how to be healthy and happy that go beyond the physical practices or the nutrition stuff that I've written a lot of other books about, like drinking a quarter green smoothie a day or detoxing twice a year or eating a whole food plant-based diet. Those are, you know, discoveries of mine that I've also written about extensively. But this book, Vibe, was much more metaphysical. And when I was researching vibrational frequencies that led to this podcast as well as that book, I think that my practice in letting go or of non-attachment is a lot of why my current relationship works so well. Because I absolutely love and adore my partner, but I don't need him. And by that, I don't mean I don't need him to help pay the bills around here. For sure, that's nice that I, you know, was blessed to be able to get an education and I've worked my whole life and I work full time and I could pay my own bills. That's not what I mean, though. It's nice to know that I can be financially self-sufficient. But what I mean is I don't need him to be with me to be happy. And I think that is when you've achieved that sort of nirvana that... Buddhist monks are going for. I think that people think that monks not getting married means they do not love. And I don't think that's the point. And I also don't think that's necessarily true. But I think that you can love without need. But I've told John a few times since we've been together, I don't actually need you. If you left, of course, I'd be sad. You know, depending on the circumstances, maybe I'd even feel hurt or angry for a short time. But I would know that I would be happy again and probably quite soon because I was happy before I met you. And the fact that I was happy before I met you, and I also experienced you to be a happy and self-contained person who doesn't need me either, is a big part of why our relationship is uh, peaceful and without anxiety and fun and just good. We don't need each other to be happy. And so this decreases all that anxiety that so many relationships have. We've all known a couple who's constantly watching each other or or one of them is watching the other, usually based on some past experience with either each other or a previous partner. Think about somebody you know who's been in a marriage with an unfaithful partner. So they're often asking that partner or their next one lots of details about their schedule and comings and goings, and they become a little bit um, cynical and very vigilant, as if vigilance as if policing another person will make them more loyal to you, as if vigilance will keep you from from having any kind of loss in your future life. And this kind of behavior we see in those who've been betrayed may be sort of the polar opposite of non-attachment. And I, and I don't think it's a happy state. But this week, I inventoried all the things that I think I need And then I went through it and I crossed off everything that I, you know, evaluated each one. I was like, how many of these things do I actually need? And it was amazing how few things I really do need. And I decided what I do need is calm or at least calm periods every day, whether that's achieved by calming techniques when I'm stressed, maybe meditation or yoga. And I've learned that I don't need any specific person, but I do need to be around people around positive people. There's an energy exchange. I think that most of us do need being around people who listen to us and care for us. Of course, I need food and air and we could debate this one, but it feels like a need. I need sunshine. I really think I need sunshine. 
But it was interesting to eliminate 90% of my perceived needs. It was a good exercise that I did this week. Highly recommend it. I really have had to learn to cultivate a mentality of letting go of my death grip on every outcome, letting go of someone else having to be a specific way to meet my needs in relationship. This has been super useful to me in parenting. So back to the original house metaphor, I don't want you to think that I'm saying this house is lousy and I've learned how to be peaceful in this lousy house. That would be ridiculous. It's a lovely house. I do realize that. And I'm not trying to say I don't need any material possessions or or that I'm I'm ready to go to living in a a hut in the woods. That's not my point. I know that I know that I'm I'm very very blessed even with the strange things in my house. But falling in love with this house even with all of its quirks and strangeness I walk through it now and I say to myself, I love this weird steamer in the counter in the kitchen. I love those hanging lights over the island in the kitchen. Ooh, and I love that view out that window. I'm determined to never lose my sense of wonder about the view, you know, as an exercise in gratitude. You know, you really do have to practice it. It's a discipline. It's no different than, you know, lifting weights or doing your cardiovascular exercises. Gratitude is a practice. And one way to do that is every time we have a house guest and they're ooing and aahing over the the view out the back of the house, I join them in that. And I try to look through their eyes and see it for the first time. For me, this house, picking a house that's weird (laughs) and not what I would have done, but perfect in its own way, a perfect place to be happy is symbolic of how I am in general accepting what is. I'm using this experience of finally landing in the home I want to stay in forever, no more moving, as a way to practice acceptance, letting go of the desire to control everything, and adapting my mindset. So this is my conclusion. Happiness is a result of choices I make. I get to decide how much time I spend in dissatisfaction or being critical of people around me or the imperfect circumstances I'm in or how much money I made this month, or whether I reached a goal or fell short of it. So I hope that this conversation has been useful to you in some way. I'm going to talk more about cultivating that even high, strong vibration that you can actually feel in your body, that state of contentment next time. So tune in then, and I'll see you back here in a week. 